0: Welcome to episode four of Think of the Children, a newsletter about the intersection of parenting and education. I'm Emily Popek, and today I'm delighted to bring you an interview with Claire Lerner, author of the new book, Why Is My Child in Charge? Claire's book is a game changer for anyone who has young children at home, and I'm so delighted to bring her wisdom to this episode. So uh, I've been reading your book. I've really been enjoying it. I've been thinking, you know, that I wished that i had had this book when my child was younger because I really related to a lot of the struggles that you describe some of these parents going through.
1: With By feeling... the way, so do I. I also <laughs> wish I had this book when my kids were. Right? There's a lot there's a lot of 2020 hard one painful hindsight and my kids are 28 and 30 so
0: yeah yeah absolutely things that you can look back on now right and there's so many things like that for me my daughter's nine she'll be 10 in about a month and there's so many things that i now understand as i look back on when she was younger um you know that uh it was really up to us as parents to hold that boundary right we didn't have to let the child be in charge um so I really related to that. I really re- related to these mindsets that you describe, and I'd love to give you a chance to say a little more about them, that sort of prevent parents from doing the things that they quote unquote know are the right thing to do when they're actually in that moment with their child. So I wanted to give you the chance to just to say a few words about your book and about how it came to be. I know you describe that in the book and on your website very eloquently, but if you want to just. Um, briefly just talk a little bit about, you know, the genesis for
1: this idea, where that came from. Essentially, what happened that led to the writing of the book was that families come to me because they're struggling with s- some kind of challenge, a mealtime, potty learning, tantrums, physical aggression, you know, basically the bread and butter stuff that almost every parent confronts at some point in the early years. And like you said they often have consumed a lot of parenting information and they, no one needs to tell them that like managing our own emotions as parents is really important and threatening and bribery and even reward systems aren't really particularly helpful in teaching children, right? How to manage their emotions and their bodies, like the major work of early childhood. But in the heat of the moment, all of these parents were still resorting to those strategies. And many came in describing things like this. My child's a fascist dictator. you know. My three-year-old is extorting us. He will only come to the dinner table if he can bring his iPad and watch Paw Patrol, right? Or the two moms who said, that, you know, they have this amazing, wonderful, feisty four year old girl who they really wanted to have agency and a sense of her own power and have lots of choices. And now she thinks she's an equity partner. So you can see many, many parents um, had, you know, a situation where things had just gotten completely upside down and essentially their children were driving the proverbial family car. And as I started to unpack sort of the dynamics in these families, um, I did that because I started to do home visits. I realized that in the comfort of my office, the strategies we talked about, you know, setting limits with love and tolerating the upset and the tantrum and the protest completely fell apart in the heat of the moment. Parents got so triggered that they couldn't sustain it and they were falling back. And so through those home visits and watching the triggers and how things unfolded, I started to reflect with parents on what at a cellular level was getting triggered for them in these moments. And that's how I landed on these eight mindsets, that there were this series of faulty mindsets that got in the way of them responding in the way they know in their sort of left brain what to do but couldn't like their right brain had just taken over and once i made them aware of these mind these faulty mindsets and helped them make important mind shifts that really is what unlocked their ability to be that parent that they really wanted to be
0: you know it was really powerful reading some of the examples in your book and again could definitely relate to them all and it, it caused me to think a lot about these mindsets that you described. And certainly, like I said, I recognize them, right? They were very familiar to me um, from some of the things that I held when I was parenting a young child, you know, things I've heard my friends or people I know when they talk about their children. I wondered, I'm so curious if you have any thoughts
1: about where these mindsets come from. Well, I think it's sort of a confluence of a number of Factors like one is certainly our own upbringings. For example, the first mindset I start out with is my child's misbehaving on purpose. He should have greater self control and be able to, you know, um, manage when he can't get what he wants when he wants it. And so when he loses it or protests, he's misbehaving. Um, you know, throws a knockdown drag out tantrum in the middle of Trader Joe's because I won't give him chocolate. That mindset, certainly, for many of us comes from what we've known and what we've heard. And that that's a spoiled child. You know, um, they're not happy unless they get exactly what they want. Um, That's, you know, misbehavior. So some of it comes from the zeitgeist of the world we live in. Some of it comes from our upbringing. For many of us, it comes from our own temperaments, right? So I'm a sensitive person who has big emotional reactions and um, has a very had a very hard time tolerating my children's upset. And so I was really at risk of and did do way too much rescuing. I did... Way too much of giving in on limits I knew were important because I felt I was being mean or I was depriving my child of something or when they pulled on my heartstrings and said, but mommy, you know, I haven't had enough time with you. So I really need you to lie with me for 20 extra minutes that. Plugged into my guilt of working and maybe not having enough time with them. And so I had a whole lot of faulty mindsets that led me to do things that ultimately felt more loving and were actually not more loving. It's one of these really important mind shifts that often what feels loving is not what our children need. And what feels unloving and quote unquote mean is actually what our children need. So what they need is. I know, sweetie, it's never going to be enough books. It's never going to feel like enough books. This is such special time. um, And I don't blame you. I don't expect you to like the rule, but our rule is three books and 10 minutes of cuddle time. So your brain and your body can get the fuel it needs to be healthy and active and strong tomorrow. And so I'm going to say goodnight, right? So there's many variables that play into why we have these faulty mindsets you can still make changes even if you don't fully understand the root cause of your own reaction but if you begin to see that it's actually the absence of the limits and boundaries that causes you to be mean that's like one of the big insights right it's it's when you don't set the important limit that things go off the rails and then you get angry and frustrated. And that's when you're the parent you don't want to be. The lo- the limits are what's loving. That's not what's harmful to the child. And a lot of times these mindsets are what get in the way of the parent being the person they want to be.
0: I love what you said about how it's, you know, it's this confluence of factors, right? There's things that we bring from our own upbringing from our own household of origin. There's things that are just sort of out there in the world, our own temperament, all of those things. And I wonder too, because I'm so fascinated with kind of this particular moment in time and what that looks like for parents and for parenting. I know you've been working with families for many years. I'm curious if you think any of these mindsets have changed over time. If you were to travel back in time, you know, a decade or two in the past, do you think your clients would have been coming to you with any different mindsets? Or is there something about these that um, are like a more longstanding sort of part of our parenting culture? I wonder what you what you think about that.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I do think that there are some of these mindsets are more prevalent now than they might've been before um, for, again, several reasons. And one biggie is just the explosion in research on early childhood development and especially brain development in the past 20, 30 years in my lifetime, right, of being in this field. So I started in this field when I, in, in like 1985. So I've seen incredible change in the way we understand young children and how they process the world and um, how much is going on in their brains from early on. And I think that's been awesome. I mean, by and large, that, that development has empowered us to change the way we approach young children in terms of our interaction and our respect for them and how important engagement and stimulation and being sensitive to the fact that even the youngest children have feelings. And that has made us much better equipped to support children's healthiest development for sure. At the same time, it's become a little bit problematic in some in in, in that it gets misinterpreted. So for example, there is a way to be very, very sensitive and supportive and empathetic towards feelings while also setting limits because that big faulty mindset, the one I talk about a lot and you see through the cases I'm talking about in the book is the lack of limits and how that is so detrimental to children and families. I think that one is especially hard for this generation of parents because somehow limits get somehow misconstrued as limiting your child. Like they're not gonna be their full self and you're not giving them all the choices they should have. Um, And you're not respecting their individuality. And that is a completely false interpretation of what limits really mean. And so if you're equating limits with somehow thwarting your child or abandoning your child, then it's gonna be very, very hard to set limits. And for many of the families I talk to when I say to them, what made it hard for you to do that? Your child was having a meltdown because it was time to leave the playground. You needed to be home to make a healthy dinner, and attend to the needs of sometimes multiple children, and ensure that they get to bed at a reasonable bedtime. So what made it hard for you when he started to protest? Parents misinterpret that limit on many levels, right? One is like, I'm thwarting a healthy activity, maybe that's not good for him. But the second biggie is, And this is true, especially for parents who have highly sensitive reactive kids, because when they are in distress mode, it can look and feel scary. Like I get, you know, I used to do a lot of home visits. I actually still do home visits, but less I do. I I get a lot of video from parents where I actually see the meltdown and I can feel it. I mean, sometimes I'm, you know, 20, 30, 200 miles away and I'm feel sick to my stomach and I'm just like, give him the extra half hour of screen time because this is so uncomfortable. But the fact is, is that that distress is not harmful to a child in an otherwise loving family where this child is getting lots of love and attention and cuddling and talking and playing and sharing meals together, setting a limit on screen time or food or bedtime, or washing hands, or whatever it might be, the distress the child may experience when they're disappointed that they can't get the extra episode of Peppa Pig, that state of distress is not toxic stress. That is just, this is so uncomfortable for me right now. I'm really little. My frontal cortex is very underdeveloped right now. I'm having a hard time managing this. And, um, but I'm going to survive it. And what they need to survive it is a parent who can say, I know you're so disappointed. I'm going to be your rock. I'm going to help you through this. I'm going to stick to the limit because that's a really loving parenting decision.
0: It was hard for me as a parent to like put into words or to articulate a lot of what you just said of like why this is hard, what it is about it that's hard. And, you know, what you were just saying about what the parent kind of needs to do to be that person that says, like, I know, I get it, I hear you, I understand that you're having a hard time. I wonder if there's an extent to which some of us who are parenting this generation are in some ways like forging a path that feels new to us, that we maybe didn't have a lot of models for. Is that ever anything that comes up uh, with the parents that you speak with, that there may be oh.
1: parenting in a way that differs from their, from their uh, family of origin? Absolutely. Which I think is what makes it so hard. I think your generation of parents has been exposed to so many of these messages. Like I'm not the first person, obviously, to say a lot of this. I've just formulated in a specific way, looking at it through a new lens, but many parents have adopted, right? This like gentle parenting and, you know, being loving and and all feelings are welcome. I mean, but it is incredibly hard work because it's not what they experience. So it doesn't come naturally. And I still get many parents who like, when push comes to shove, they're like, I just have to teach him a lesson. Like he can't talk to me that way. Go to your room. Yeah. Like when the chips really
0: are down, I feel like many of us as parents, don't know what it looks like to hold a boundary without being authoritarian right because we have not seen that in the wild like so our idea i feel like there's a cognitive dissonance and like stop me if this does not sound if what i'm saying does not sound like what you're hearing from parents but what i what comes up in my conversations with other parents is the only concept i have of how to hold a boundary is like you're grounded you're in a timeout go to your room Uh, you know what I mean? Like some version of those things that we experienced as a kid. And it's like, what else would, (laughs) what else would I do? I don't know. And especially when they're having a tamper tantrum in the middle of Trader Joe's, I'm exhausted. Uh, Whatever else sort of pushes that volume knob up a little bit so that you're not like really at your best. If you don't have those models to draw on, as you say, it's really hard to Not just know what to do, but to react in the way that
1: you would want to parent, right? That's Emily, really the crux of the issue. Like, Really the take home of all of this to me, if I had to sum it up, is it's our reactivity that's killer. It really is. We love these kids so much. That we get triggered very easily when we see them doing something or saying something that we know in our adult brain is not going to be helpful to them oh my god i don't want that kid who doesn't know how to manage his emotions when he can't be the line leader or the snack helper i want him to be the kind kid who shares and can say no problem i'm fine with not being the snack helper i'll do whatever you want teacher like we get triggered because we love them so much but The triggers send us almost always down a path that has the opposite effect of what our children really need because we start to shame or we start to get revved up and reactive and then our highly sensitive kid starts to spiral alongside of us and then the whole thing falls apart and there's no lesson learned. So it is the hardest thing is throwing a monkey wrench into that reactivity. So here's what I come up with and work on with the families I work with to address that exact issue, because they've read that getting calm is important, but there was like a missing piece. So here's what I came up with. I realized I had to give parents something to do, to actually say and do in that moment. It goes like this. So let's say you're my daughter. And I've told you that iPad time is done and you're like having none of it. All you do is sportscast. You just put into words what's in front of you. I've given you a direction, Emily, that iPad time is over. It's time to hand it back you're having a hard time following that direction. I'm going to take a mommy minute to think about how I can help us solve this problem. And you just say that about whatever's in front of you. You're naming what's in front of you. You're not judging. You're not getting angry. You're not getting frustrated. And I will tell you that in some cases, the child's so freaked out by like your calm and that you're just stating it without ain't that they actually just like do it
0: in a optimistic world I would like to imagine that for some kids it gives them that pause too like that moment that they needed to be like oh right like mom told me to put this down now like maybe I wasn't really I hadn't really taken that information in yet but like now that I'm hearing it a second time calmly like yes mom did say it's time to put up the iPad I have to imagine that it helps that like we also hear the words that we're saying to ourselves right like saying those things out loud maybe helps me as the parent truly see what's happening and tell a story that isn't the story of my kid is such a brat, I'm such a bad mom, this situation's out of control. It's like, no, that's not the story I'm telling right now. The story I'm telling is that you know, you're know you having a hard time with the direction I just gave you and we're gonna take a minute
1: to, to solve this problem. Um, exactly, and it gives, it gives you that plus. So like, like bringing it all together, in my work with families, it goes something like this, building on what we've started, right? Oh, Emily, I've asked you to hand back the iPad. You're having a hard time. I'm going to take a mommy minute. And then the mommy minute is something like this. First, you say to yourself, I don't have a bad kid. She's not misbehaving on purpose. What child wants to give up an iPad? I've met very few, especially after COVID, who are going to be like, you know, you're right, mom, there's more edifying things for me to do with my brain than be on a screen all day. So, you know, I'm going to hand this back. No, like that, if you see the resistance as just, this is a hard thing for her at the same time, if I focus all my energy on trying to control her and bribe, negotiate, reward, coax her to agree to give the iPad back, she's completely in charge. I'm just hoping against hope that one of my strategies is going to convince her to finally say, okay, I'll give you the iPad. That's a major mind shift is that when you go down that path, you're in what I call the gray zone, which is that space where you are, are using strategies that all depend on your child ultimately agreeing to change her behavior, which you have no control over. Like how many memes have you seen about like, you don't control anybody but yourself, nothing could be more true than parenting. These are human beings. Like you can't actually force them to pick up Legos and put them in a basket on the shelf. Or as it turns out, actually anything.
0: You can't actually force them to do anything. At exactly. all, let alone put away, right? Like literally exactly.
1: nothing. <laughs> exactly, like you don't control what comes out of their mouth. You don't control what they choose to do with their bodies. The only thing you control is how you respond in those moments and how you, the structures you create and the scaffolding you provide, right? So in going back to our little scenario, the way I help parents play it out is, so now you're going, Emily, is a human being. And by the way, I literally encourage parents to say all of this. You sort of turn away, you're in the room but you're not making eye contact and you may be even like putting your, you know, hand to your forehead and going, "Hmm." So, Emily's a human being. I can't actually make her give back the iPad. Like that's a choice Emily needs to make. So, what are her two great choices? I guess her two great choices would be one, she chooses to give the iPad back, in which case she can have her iPad time later, because that's part of our rules is that when iPad time is done, she gives it back. So that's one great choice for Emily. And by the way, remember, you're saying this all out loud with Emily in the room. Option two would be if Emily chooses not to give it back, no problem. I'll be a helper. I'll take it. That may feel kind of uncomfortable because I may have to kind of, you know, take it out of her hands and she may run away and I may have to find her and then get it out of her hands. But iPad time going away is a have to. So then you turn back around. And again, many kids at this point have handed it back now, really, because they're right. So then you say, Emily, here's the deal, sweetie. iPad is going to go away. That's a have to. Time is up. Totally get you're not done, that you want more time. Totally understand, not asking you to like my limit, but it's time. So you have two great choices. You can hand it back and get your iPad time later or tomorrow, whenever the next time is, because that's our rule. If you choose not to, I will need to take it. That may feel really uncomfortable to both of us, But that's what we need to do to put the iPad away. That's what I will need to do. So this is such a big decision for you. And I want to help Emily make the best decision for Emily. So I'm going to give you a minute to think about, is it a better choice for you to give it back and have your iPad time later? Or is it a better choice for me to need to take it out of your hands? You decide. So you see how I'm incorporating every mindset. I'm not angry at you. You're just doing what's in the DNA of a child, which is to try and get their way. It's my job to set the limit to show you what is going to work and not work. And I'm going to do it lovingly and calmly. And I'm going to stay in charge and give you choices within limits. It's not a choice like whether we're giving the iPad back or not. It's how it's going to happen is up to you. Is it going to be option one or option two? But if you don't have an end game, you're stuck in that deadly gray zone, hoping that your child is ultimately going to agree to get in bed, stay in bed, sit at the dinner table, get in their car seat. The list goes on, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, because I feel like I eventually came to some of these understandings as a parent much later than I had hoped to. But I think about how differently I speak to my child now than I did maybe when she was three or four. When I go upstairs in the morning, I will say, "Um, your dad and I are about to eat breakfast and I hope that you'll join us. And that's all I say, because I finally realized, you know what? If my child decides not to eat breakfast this morning, that's what's going to happen. That is not under my control. However, I want to let her know that I would love to have breakfast with her right now. And then I'm going to walk out of the room. It feels so much better. Yeah, so I mean that, yeah. And no one's mad because I have decided that is not a situation I need to enforce boundary around at this time in our household. That's one of the other things I think about are um, when we start dying on a hill that we didn't need to die on, right? That sometimes we try to make things like a uh, things that are I have to, right? Like this the iPad has to go up right now. And we like obviously we all have those in our family and those things are really important. But I also see parents get caught in like a trap of their own making where they have made something a non-negotiable demand that that maybe didn't really have to be.
1: Your scenario, you've recognized like you cannot physically make your child sit at the table and eat. So if, if that's the hill you're gonna die on, you're gonna be dying a thousand deaths because you're focusing on trying to get your child to do something Which means you have no control over the situation. So instead you're saying we're having breakfast, we would love you to join us I'm assuming there's some limit like we're going to be doing this for 20 minutes after that, the food is going to be gone and we're going to be going to school and if you choose not to come, we'll pack you a to go thing like you're not going to deprive her of food. But there is going to be like you're focusing on what you control, which is we're going to sit down and eat. There's going to be certain foods we're offering and there's going to be a time limit. That is the boundary that scaffolds the behavior for the child, because it's when you come in with a threat or a struggle. If you don't come down now, there's none of this or there's none. All you're doing is you're getting your child's haunches up and they're in for a fight. So if you have a child who is all about power and control, you're just giving them fodder. And it's amazing the lengths kids will go and the things they will deprive themselves of Just to maintain that power. They want to come down. They want to eat breakfast with you. But if you make it into a power struggle, that desire for control supersedes everything. Trying to force your child to do something almost always leads to the outcome you are trying to avoid.
0: Right. Whether it's like the whining, the fighting, the excuses, oh, just five more minutes, all those things that drive you nuts. Right. I think for many parents, that is what they think boundaries look like. Right. They think that, you know, the boundary means like it is breakfast time. You are going to get out of bed right now. You're going to march down. and, you know, I, it has helped me so much to understand that like the boundary can be larger than that. And, and to really reflect on like, what are the non-negotiables? Um, another one for us was like wearing a coat, right? Like, I don't force my kid to wear their coat. Like, I will bring
1: it with us. Do you know how many kids I work with where, like, the parent will literally physically force it? And the second <laughs> they were at the kid, right. has, it's out of the jacket. What's going like, to happen? Yeah. I have kids stripping themselves naked. For it, sure. It's, it's so counter. This is the other thing is that so much of, the most, I would say, loving, effective parenting is very counterintuitive. It's actually, it's just not true that using your instincts, unfortunately, a lot of the time actually results in the, the outcome you're trying to avoid, right? So like your instinct might be, oh my God, it's freezing out. I, 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 I need a scarf, gloves, and a fleece, and a jacket. Like there's no way my child, that's like horrible to... In fact, you're setting up a situation where if you've got a kid who wants to basically show you that you're not the boss of them, they just strip down naked the second you walk out of the house. So it's actually much more effective. I'm, I'm sure this is where you're headed, which is that like um, it's really called out. It's your body. Would you like a coat? It's your decision. Once once you no longer are making it into a power struggle, that's when they're freed to make the right choice because they're no longer eating crow. These kids are so dead set on being in charge that if the optics are that they are giving in to what you want, they will resist that to their own detriment. Right, but that means we as parents have to stop focusing
0: on like winning and being right. If we're not willing to let go of that, then it's going to be a power struggle. And so we have to be ready to be wrong. This is one of my favorite things in life: is being ready to be wrong. Yeah. To say, like, you know what? Maybe my kid didn't need a coat today. I might have gotten that wrong, and that, and like, I have to be ready to be wrong about those things because they are a human being, right? And uh, well, and you and you have them. to
1: get clear on, like, for example, like obviously, getting into a car seat is going to be a have to. It, that's the scenario where it might more be like, Bud. I'm not trying to convince you to love the car seat. It's my job. It's a safety issue. It's a have to. How it happens, totally up to you. Here are your two great choices. You're in charge of your body. You do it yourself. If not, I'll be a helper. It may feel uncomfortable. You strap them in. You move on like nothing happened. You're talking about the leaves on the trees, and you're playing. Right. You're playing music and and you're basically saying to your child I love you so much I'm not going to go down this path with you I'm going to help you move on to what's safe but what's the alternative to get into a 20 minute knockdown drag out battle trying to convince your child to agree to get in the car seat now he's late for school and the teacher's mad at you and you're late for work and now Everyone's you're crying ang- you're angry at your kid because he's he's messed up everybody's morning and what the hell is wrong with you like that way more detrimental than saying, I'll be a helper and moving on as swiftly as possible. But on things that you have no control over, you, you don't want to have the setup be setting a limit. You have no way of enforcing. So telling a child to stay in their room at bedtime is useless if they can motor themselves right out of the bedroom. So get comfortable with boundaries it's the absence of the boundary that leads to the interactions that are detrimental boundaries are as helpful for parents as they are for kids because it guides you in staying in charge in this positive way and parents are like they they they're like it, it almost they cringe when i say you need to be in charge it almost like they feel like being in charge is somehow being authoritarian fascist dictator giving directions is loving and helpful to kids. It's why they love school because teachers are amazing at giving clear directions and children know exactly what their marching orders are and it makes them feel safe and secure. There's no gray zone. It's helping children know what the expectation is. And that's where a lot of that confusion comes in.
0: We've been fostering a puppy these last couple of weeks. It's really a lot of the same. This is, this is like what young creatures need to learn how to thrive in the world, right? Like they need structure and boundaries. You know, our children are not puppies and also they need some of the same things. And it, you know what? It was just as hard for me with this puppy as it was with my young child, but I I love, I mean, I would put your book into the hands of of every parent of young children that I know, because I think it's so necessary to see the truths behind these ideas that we carry around with us about like, as if our children should never cry or be unhappy, which is so ludicrous. And, and I see people trying to parent that way. I tried to parent that way, not consciously, but that's kind of what was motivating me. And it's not a goal that any of us should pursue because it's not how life works.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the other mantra. Happy children are not always happy. Like if you're trying to make your child happy, it's not by avoiding their upset because kids don't like limit. Why would they be happy about a limited bedtime or on snack food or on screens or on playground time? And so you have to get comfortable with their discomfort and know that that's part of like, look, you can't open up any kind of publication that doesn't talk about the importance of resilience and grit. That's where it's built, is in learning, manage that you can't have what you want when you want it. And that's all about setting clear limits. So it once parents make that mental shift and they get comfortable with it is when things really start to change. But it starts with not misinterpreting your child's upset as damaging to them this is great thank you so much for speaking with me today
0: i would also love to know like where people can find you is your website the best place for people to go to learn more about you in the book
1: yeah it is because it's the portal to everything i've got you know i write constantly i have tons and tons of blogs i have a newsletter that is free that people can sign up for that comes out every couple of weeks like The one I just wrote was about when going home for the holidays is more stressful than joyful when you have a big reactor or a kid who's slow to warm up. And I'm always writing about like in the trenches stuff, not like it's not, it's not just theoretical. It's like, here's what's going on for these kids. And here's what they need from you. And here's how to take care of yourself at the same time. And so my newsletter is a good resource. And of course, everything about the book is on the website. Of course, people can get the book, you know anywhere books are sold. Great. I will.
0: I will be sure to include that link. Thanks so much to Claire for speaking with me about this important topic. And thank you for listening. To get my newsletter in your inbox every two weeks, visit emilypopek.com and click on newsletter. See you next time on Think of the Children.